Well, uh, today my topic is on I'm alone, and um, it, it's a topic that I think I hope will resonate with all of you. Let me just stop and just share that uh, while Patty and I were away, uh, we met a guy named John. In fact, we met John at the beach, and um, John was a great guy. He was a family man. He's um, uh, had brought his kids and some of their friends on family vacation with him. I mean, what a great guy. I mean, who, who would do that? Bring more teenagers uh, to vacation with you. But John, John did that. And I, I learned a little bit about John. He's from Ohio. Uh, all of our Ohio folks are going, yay, Ohio. He was from Cincinnati. And he commented to me about how he was really hopeful that this year that the Bengals would have a great season. So he wanted to know where I was from, and I said, well, we were locals, we were from this area here. And that launched into about a two-hour conversation about Tom Brady, Gronk, and the Bucks, about what, what kind of season they would have for that. So, so I asked John, I said, you know, John, here you are from Ohio, you're coming, why, why Florida? Why do you vacation in Florida? And he said, Bob, I don't like the winters of Ohio. Being a Florida boy, I, I really don't know what those kind of winters are like. So I asked, I said, well, well, what's winter like in Cincinnati, Ohio? And John launched into kind of a, a diatribe of examples. He, he launched into a couple of things. He said, uh, winter is death. He said, it's, it's snow, it's shoveling snow, it's shoveling lots of snow. It's buying a, a snow plow. And then before um, he could stop talking, he continued, he said, it's, it's like chains on your tires. It's like black ice. It's like dead batteries. It's like thermal underwear. It's like months of time that my wife wears thermal underwear. And he went on and on and on about, and I came to the conclusion that John does not like winter. So I said, John, so, so here you are. You want to get away from winter, so you want to move to Florida, right, when you retire. Is that where you're going to retire, here in Florida? And he looked right at me. He said, no way. I'm retired to Minot, South Dakota. I mean, who, who'd have thought about that? North Dakota. See, I don't even know my Dakotas. But listen, um, souls go through a wintry season too, don't they? Um, there are times that, that, that we go through seasons in our own lives where we see a winter, where, where all of a sudden we have these feelings of being alone, that we're not sure what to do. Now, what is a spiritual winter of the soul? It's a, it's a human condition. It's a, it's a condition where we really don't have the opportunity in our minds to see the good that can come from the life that we have. A, a, a spiritual winter is an opportunity where, where joy evades us, and we're just not sure um, what life will bring, let alone if there's anything good. In fact, a spiritual winter is when we begin to not sense God's presence, that all of the things that are happening, that God is not there, so therefore we feel alone. But I'm hopeful today that as we talk about this, that you and I will discover by the time I finish that that's not the truth, that we are never alone but that we are always within the grasp of God. So feeling alone is, is not uncommon. In fact, I would venture to guess that um, a lot of us in the last five or so months have periodically felt those feelings of being alone. We've, we've felt that whether it's a stay-in-place order or, or we can't do the kinds of things that we would want to do in a normal life that we would see. We wear face masks. We're, we're kind of plagued with all things that this coronavirus has brought. And so we, we have these feelings of alone. Now, what brings out uh, additional feelings of alone? Well, the reality of it is that when people lose their jobs, they feel alone. 
Um, many of us, our identities are tied to the vocation in which we live. If you're an accountant, your, your identity is, a t- is tied to the accounting process. A friend of mine, a colleague, um, she's a pastor, and, and so her whole identity is tied to the fact that she's a pastor, and she was really struggling about whether she could retire or should retire because she didn't know how devastating it would be for her when no one would call her Pastor Patty anymore. Well, some other ways that bring aloneness is, is that uh, some of us, we have gone to the doctor and we've had tests run, and, and some of us have had that unfortunate news where the doctor has said that the test has come back positive. And when tests come back positive, especially in very perplexing events in our life with, with regard to our health, we start running a tape loop in our mind, and we start rolling out, and we start thinking about what life could be. We start imagining our children, and then watching them get married, and having children of their own, grandchildren, and, and retiring, and enjoying a long life. But when those test results come back positive, sometimes we feel alone. We also feel alone when, 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 you, when you lose somebody that you love so deeply through death. And when death comes and steals that individual that is such a vital part of your life, you can feel alone. So aloneness and being alone are, are a plethora of feelings and emotions of things that we see. Some of us find ourselves alone because we're afraid, and therefore we feel that we cannot move. The great Christian writer C.S. Lewis, one of the things that he dealt with was, was his own dealing with where is God and sense of aloneness when his wife died. And look at what Lewis wrote. He said, where is God? Isn't that a, a question that many ask? He said, go to him uh, when your need is desperate, when all other help is, is vain. And, and what do you find? You find a door slammed in your face, he writes, and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, nothing but silence. So, so when we look at this, the question becomes, why, why do we feel alone? I mean, we have people everywhere, but why do we feel alone? And for many of us, we feel alone because we feel God is not to be found. And that loneliness comes and strikes us. We, we had a series not long ago called uh, Lamentations or Lament. And we talked about some of the books of the Bible, uh, some of the scriptures like Ecclesiastes and and the book Lamentations and a third of the Psalms, 50 of the Psalms, talk about lamenting, talks about ways in which we as human beings are struggling with our loneliness when, when we feel that God isn't there. And I, and I shared with us that that, that, that sense of feeling alone um, can draw us into a capacity of not only physically feeling alone, but spiritually and emotionally. Well, in the book called Job, it's a piece of our, what we call, Uh, wisdom literature of our scriptures. It's a story of a guy named Job, and Job is a person who would be what I would call the epitome of loneliness. He was the epitome of feeling alone. Uh, When we look at the um, book of Job, and as we evaluate that, we understand that here's a guy who often wondered throughout all the readings of what this book says, where is God? In fact, the scripture kind of uh, starts off with some unknowns, and it begins like this. It says, in the land of Uz, there, was a, there lived a man whose name was Job. And the readers, which is we, we try to figure out, well, well who is Job and what is it? And, and, and the writer is very sketchy with kind of giving us a lot about Job. What we do know is, is that, that uh, we try to figure out where Uz is and where is that geographically. A friend of mine was talking to me recently, and he said, Bob, Uz is near Djibouti. And I'm like, well, where's Djibouti? I mean, who knows where that is? 
So, so we're not really sure. But here's some things that we don't know is that the scripture says that Job was the greatest man among the people of the East. Now, it doesn't say that he was a Hebrew. It doesn't say he was an Israelite. It just says he was, he was a wise person, a great person of, of the East. And the writer's point is, is trying to help us to understand that you and I, at some point in time in our life, we too could be Job, that Job is us and we are Job. So the problems in this book come out in, in what I would call the problems of the entire human race. All of us wrestle with some time about the reality of loneliness. We wrestle with the fact that, that we, we feel alone, that there's nobody with us, or that we can't reach out and touch God explicitly or implicitly in that matter. But in the beginning, we learn about Job. The scriptures say that he was blameless, that he was a man of obedience, and that he was a man who feared God and he shunned evil. And in some ways, we would even look at Job prayed for his children and, 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 and prayed and prayed and prayed again just to make sure that they wouldn't make bad decisions to fall into evil. So here's a great guy who finds himself in a dilemma, who finds himself in the midst of of loneliness. So what we learn as we begin to read about all the good things about Job, we understand that winter is coming to the land of Uz. In fact, winter is coming like the coronavirus. It's coming and it's going to bring an awful time that happens that Uz will now find a good man who is struggling with feeling alone. So us will be a place not just where suffering comes, but where it comes without warning, where it comes without explanation, where it comes without understanding what the solutions are that could be there. I mean, is any of this kind of sounding familiar to any of you? Do, do any of you kind of feel that way right now? Have you over the last couple of months felt kind of this way in which we see that Job is feeling? Uh, the story shifts, and, and a man who felt so secure finds himself on the outskirts of sensing that God is nowhere to be found. So he's gone from total security to total independence in a sense that he is dependent upon his own fear and he's looking for God and he's not sure where God is. Well, like the effects of the awful Ohio winters that John would describe, winter comes upon Job and, and Job no longer feels connected. He no longer senses community. He feels alone, and he is living a life that is filled with despair. So think about that. I mean, um, um, have you gone with what, from what I would call a stable life, a life that maybe has um, some uh, consistency to it, only to find out that, that something happens, the winter comes, so to speak, and your soul is affected, and you find yourself no longer connected in community, but you feel alone? The story of Job draws us in. So the question that we learn from this is, is, is how can any human being hold on to the fact and hold on to, to God in the face of life being dealt with in these daily struggles? How can we as human beings hold on that God is here, that God is with us in the midst of the things that we struggle with, uh, the challenges that are there? I read the headlines just like you. I have some concerns just like you. And, and so how do we hold on to, to the completeness and the goodness of God? How do we understand that we're not alone in the midst of what's happening? So, so Job then gets hit with a second wave. So, so all of a sudden, if life couldn't have been bad, it gets worse. It's kind of like we're seeing the second wave of the virus that's coming, and, 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 and a lot of the medical personnel are saying that it's worse than the first because now it's affecting younger people, and it's affecting more people. And look at the numbers here in Florida. 
Uh, we are skyrocketing out of control. So like Job, we're sensing the second wave, this flurry that's greater than what we expected before. So, so what little bit of confidence that Job has about recovering, what bit of confidence Job has about getting back to some normalcy of life begins to fizzle away. And he, and he gives up and he sits on an ash heap and he just sits there. Now, some will ask, well, why does he do that? And maybe he's in depression. Maybe he's just ready to kind of just give up. Maybe he just doesn't know where else to turn. So he goes to the local dump and he sits on an ash heap and he begins to feel even more isolated. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt kind of isolated or, or that you just kind of want to find the local dump and sit on an ash heap because there's just nothing else to do? Well, that puts us right in the middle of this story. Now, Job's wife um, begins to say things that just don't make sense. She looks at her husband and she says, curse God and die. And listen, um, uh, you've probably said things sometimes that, that weren't really what you meant or because of the, the intensity of the emotion and where you were or what was happening to you, you might have said some things that maybe you would not have said otherwise. Well, she's beginning to experience a lot of fear. She's beginning to experience uncertainty. She sees her husband, Job, withering away, and she ultimately understands that on this trajectory, he's going to ultimately die and leave her all alone. In fact, when she says those words, my guess is she's also complimenting some words that Job himself is thinking, but he's just not saying. So Job finds himself in this place, and he feels alone, and in his heart, he's begun to struggle. So we learn about now Job's friends. There's a good side to his friends, and there's not a not-so-good side to his friends. The good side is his friends recognize that he's in trouble, and, and they understand that they need to do something about that. And they understand the pain in which his life is in and how lonely he's feeling. So what do they do? They, they come to his home. They come and they visit him. And when they come and they see him, they cannot believe at all uh, who this man is because he no longer looks like their friend. He no longer looks like Job. The despair and the loneliness has just really transformed and changed him into a shell of a person. So what do they do? Um, you know, they begin to think about what can we do to help our friend? Now, my guess is that if you've ever had a friend who's been going through some challenges, if you've ever had a friend who's feeling lonely, if you've ever had a friend who, who is in despair, uh, most of us, what we do is we put on our tool belts and we go to their home or we go to wherever they are and we want to try to fix the problem that they're, that they're trying to endure. In fact, what we do in trying to fix that is we try to give them reasons as to why this is happening. We're trying to tell them, well, it's happening because of this, 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 and this. And, and the truth is, it likely isn't. But then we take the next step of trying to fix it because then we try to say to them, you'll get over this, it's okay, God will get you through. We, we give all those sunny phrases that we put. And most importantly, what we're trying to say is, don't cry anymore because it makes us feel bad because we don't want to see you cry. And that's the human nature of where we are. In fact, Job's friends come, but they don't do that. Listen to what the scriptures say. They sat on the ground with Job for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Now imagine, have you ever gone to somebody who's been lonely, gone to somebody in despair, gone to somebody who feels alone? Have you ever sat with them seven straight days and nights without saying a word? 
Folks, that's something we learn in ministry called being the presence of Jesus for somebody. Not coming in and trying to solve their problems, not coming in and flapping your gums, trying to help them to feel better, but coming and sitting in the midst of their loneliness and their pain with them so that they know that they're not alone. And that's what his friends do. The apostle Paul says this. He says, mourn with those who mourn. Mourn with those who mourn. Come alongside those who are feeling alone. Come and sit with and be community for the lonely. Paul is pointing this out. Paul doesn't say provide people with, with quick fixes and answers. Tell them, you know, um, words and phrases that will hur hurry up and, and help them to feel better. Paul doesn't tell us to do that at all. He says mourn with those who mourn. Be with and provide community with those who are feeling alone. In his second letter to the church in Corinth, that same apostle, Paul, writes, letter, writes a letter telling them of his own afflictions. If you study Paul's life, you will know that it was not a life that was filled with a lot of uh, good things. In fact, most of his life, like King David, most of his life is spent running from people who are trying to kill him. But Paul has this call from God to, to begin new church communities, to begin to help people to follow Jesus the way. And Paul's life is full of crisis after crisis after crisis. And Paul's life is filled with a lot of loneliness. How do we know that? Because he spent time alone in prison for most of his ministry for Jesus. And Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, trying to encourage them. He's trying to say, don't look, at, don't look to me, Paul, to come solve your problems. Look to the one who has solved my problems. And Paul recognizes that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the one who has rescued him, who is the one who has brought him out of his loneliness, who is the one who has moved him above his afflictions and his challenges. And Paul says to the people, look to Jesus. He writes, praise be to the God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in what? In all of our troubles. So Paul is recognizing that the source of comfort doesn't come really from us, but it ultimately comes from God. And God, that source, is the bedrock, the foundation, because God is always there. And therefore, we can trust that when we feel alone, we really aren't, because God is with us. Paul continues to write, so that, that why do we do this? So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from our God. He goes on, for just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. Now, Paul is notorious with his what I call so that statements. He makes a, a statement and then he says so that, and what he means by that is he says that this is the truth because so that, and then he it issues a responsibility for you and me. So Paul is saying that we have a responsibility as believers to come alongside those who are lonely, that you and I are to come alongside and we are to share with them, not to solve their problems, but to share how we felt God's presence with us, that on the other side of the dilemma, on the other side of the challenge, when we look back, we saw how God delivered us through that. And through those testimonies, Paul says, is how we bring the comfort of Christ, because Christ has brought comfort to us. 
Is this making any sense? Is this, I hope it is, because it, it defines the importance of continuous community in presence. And Paul writes about this. So, so toward the end of the story, um, we find that, that Job is feeling alone, and he cries out to God in desperation. And he is so lonely that he has convinced himself that no matter what, that God is not there. And nothing can be farther from the truth. But it's interesting because in, in 30 plus chapters in the book of Job, God never speaks until Job does this. He, he, he reaches up in, in, in verse 23, and he says these words. He says, if only I knew where to find God, if only I could go to God's dwelling, I would state my case before him, and I would fill my mouth with arguments. It's kind of like one of those, don't make me come up there kind of things, right? But what, what Job doesn't realize or recognize when he says this is that really he's going to be told to put his money where his mouth is. In fact, it goes back to that statement, never say something unless you mean it. So Job is saying, if I could find God, if I could stand before him, I would tell God this. And then all of a sudden, God speaks. And I, and I, I want you to go into the book of Job, and I want you to read in those latter chapters especially, and see as God is speaking to Job. And what you're going to find is God speaks in a pattern of questions. They're not these direct statements. They're really a pattern of questions. And, and some people will look at this and say, man, God is just being unfair. He's toying with and he's playing with Job and he's just um, you know, throwing these questions that Job can't answer because guess what? Job can't answer. You and I can't answer any of these questions. So why in the world is God doing this when someone's crying out, I'm alone, where are you, God? Why is God peppering him with questions? You see, God knew and knows with you and me, and he knew with Job, that we have a finite mind. We can only see so far in what life will bring. And in most instances, it's what affects us. So God is asking these big picture questions because he's trying to stretch Job's mind. He's trying to stretch Job's heart. He's trying to say, Job, quit looking at it from a finite point of view. Quit looking at it so small because it's what you're confronted with. I want you to see the bigger picture because God is infinite. And God is saying, I want you to see where this is, Job, in my eyes. And he raises Job's eyes in that fashion. So let, let's think about that for a second. I, you know, I know with me and probably with you, when we get upset, when we feel alone, when we're feeling lonely, we focus on our own needs, don't we? we don't, we're, not, we're not really thinking about anybody else. We're thinking about us. Let's just be honest. How is this going to affect me? Why is this affecting me? Why is this doing this to me? Why am I this? Why am I that? How can? And, and we ask all those questions. But the reality is God wants to move us out of our finite way of seeing things into the bigger picture so that we can see something that's greater. When God is asking these questions, he's stretching Job's mind and ours. Let me take you specifically to Job 38, 25 to 27. Listen to what God says. He asks this question of Job. He says, who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain to water a land where no man lives? So, so who takes a desert and who cuts through that desert a, an avenue for a river of water and nobody lives there, okay? He says, um, he says, he does that to satisfy a desolate wasteland and makes it sprout with grass. So, so he's saying, who does that, Job? 
Who, who takes a desolate wasteland, puts a river into it, and sprouts grass when nobody lives there, when it's a desolate place? But who does that? Who puts that goodness there? And he's helping Job to see. So, so one of the things we find out is, is that in the ancient world, rain uh, means something because rain came few and far between. So for the ancient world, they would immediately say, wait a minute, rain is something that we need. It sustains us. But not only that, it restores us. It is, the, it is that which is needed of life, and it begins to bring things in perspective. So why would God water a land where no one lives? Because God is a gratuitous God of goodness. Because God is a God of grace. Because God is uncontrollably generous. He's irrationally loving. Because God chooses to do that when we couldn't even think why. God puts himself in the midst of that and does it anyway. So there's a wilderness where no one lives, yet God has placed a river there. God has put grass there. God has made it living and thriving, and nobody even lives there because of the generosity of God. So what God is telling Job is, he's saying, Job, I'm worth it. He's saying, Job, hang in there. Don't, don't think I've abandoned you. I would never abandon you. I am there, I'm with you. The pain is not gonna last forever. The loneliness is not gonna last forever because I'm the kind of God who is a God of goodness, a God of glory. So when, when God came into the world himself, he came in, into the, the flesh of Jesus and he walked amongst the world and Jesus, like Job, saw a lot of despair in life. In fact, he saw a lot of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And we see through those experiences um, the, the challenges. Even Jesus wondered, where is God in the midst of this? On the cross, as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But what we learn from that is, is that, that in the winter of life, when Jesus was furthest from the Father, he's the closest to us. And therefore, he walks with us. He is there. Jesus is never closer to you than he is right now. Don't let your mind, don't let your fears, don't let uh, whatever it is that causes you not to see that, don't let that take precedence over the truth. The writer of Hebrews says something that's very important. And what the writer says is that God says, I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. I am with you always. You see, the truth is there. So is God with you? Are you alone? You're not alone. The presence of Jesus Christ is with you. Jesus felt it, Job felt it, you can trust it. God is with you, you are never alone. Amen?